Welcome to the STR Data Lab. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the STR Data Lab. I'm Jamie Lane, Chief Economist at AirDNA, and I'm joined here today by a good friend and colleague, uh, Bram Gallagher, Economist at AirDNA. Uh, Bram, thanks for joining today. Thanks for having me, Jamie. Good morning. So we're sitting here the Tuesday after Labor Day, September 5th. Uh, how was your Labor Day? Uh, you know, it was it was great. It was very relaxing. Uh, spent the the weekend at home, actually. That's awesome. Uh, I actually had a an interesting Labor Day. We went up to the mountains, North Georgia mountains. Um, it was a friend's house on the river. And what's happened recently is a uh, beach has formed on the river right on their property. So we got to hang out at the beach in the mountains, which is... <laughs> Uh, I feel like a, a fun industry question, are you a beach or mountain guy? And the fact that we, and with our two young kids, two and five, got to hang out on the beach while being up in the mountains and it was great weather, like was the best of best of both worlds. Yeah, we'll have to have a new location category for beach slash mountain resorts. <laughs> Absolutely. So had you on today specifically because we wanted to talk about some of the risks out there. Uh, to both the economy and the short-term rental industry. Uh, you've been a travel economist for, uh, what, coming up on a decade now, mm. uh, looking at and the impacts uh, of the economy on both on overnight accommodations. Uh, you've got a sort of a keen sense of uh, the impacts of different things on short-term rentals. So I was hoping we could run through some of those potential headwinds, given and we've had so much good news on the demand side and yes, some, some weakness on the occupancy side and, and now some weakness on ADRs, but overall just still a relatively healthy short-term rental market. So, and what could potentially delay that? Does that sound good? Absolutely. You know, as a, a practitioner of the dismal science, it, it, it pays to look at the negatives every once in a while. Yeah. So, and we don't want this to come off as a, a negative ep episode, but it's meant to be one that, what are the things that we're thinking about today that might cause things to not be as strong as they have been uh, as we look out over the, over the back half of 2023 and into 2024? Right. Events to look out for. Yeah. And we're going to stop me, start maybe one that's uh, a little bit unpredictable, uh, but impactful nonetheless especially with the, the recent sort of Hurricane Idalia in, 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 in Florida. So maybe I could start with Bram. I mean, one, what have we seen in, in Hurricane Idalia and, it, and its impact? I know and thoughts with everyone down there. There were some areas that were really impacted, like, like Cedar Key and, and other areas in, in the panhandle as it came through. But we have sort of studied Hurricane Michael, Hurricane Ian in the past. But just overall, what what have we seen in terms of hurricane impact and what sort of risk is that for the short term rental sector? Right. That's a great question, uh, Jamie. And, you know, we Hurricane Adelia, it's, it was a deadly hurricane. Um, but when we look at it compared to those two previous storms that you talked about, Hurricane Michael and Ian, the effect is, is much less pronounced on. Uh, the overnight stays in tourism sector because of, well, one, the strength of the hurricane was, was a Category 3, and Hurricane Michael is a Category 5, uh, 
Ian was a strong four. Um, but but also, I think primarily it was the, the area it hit was not uh, as densely uh, populated and uh, as developed as some of the places that have been hit in the past. And uh, also, luckily, it was a pretty swift moving storm, so we didn't see as much flooding with uh, Hurricane Adelia. So that was that was fortunate. You know, looking at some previous, you know, I, I've been looking at these hurricanes for a long time. Me and my family, we, we go down to Panama City Beach every year. It's our, it's our yearly annual vacation spot. Uh, and I always have to say, except when Hurricane Michael uh, hit, then we went to, to, we had to go to Destin. But it had a profound uh, effect um, on a very localized area, Michael. So it, it, you know, it struck Mexico Beach and Panama City Beach, I think primarily. And that was where we saw a lot of the effects. But even looking at that small area, Hurricane uh, Michael, we saw Mexico Beach, its short-term rental supply was reduced by about 85%. So completely gone, essentially. Panama City Beach, which is adjacent to it, saw about a 10% uh, decline in the, in the supply being offered. And it was able to recover the very next season. So, you know, it's... Uh, with these with these storms, sometimes the effects can be very highly localized. Uh, it, Hurricane Ian, on the other hand, now it was a slightly weaker storm when it hit, uh, but because of the way that it, it moves through the state and the flooding, the, the extensive damage it caused to a lot of the you know very densely developed uh, areas, Cape Coral. Also, uh, we we see some effects in in Lakeland, Winter Haven. And that's been a lot slower to recover. So it's a bigger, it was a bigger area. It was a profound effect. And we're still seeing the recovery from that. In fact, I believe the supply went down about a quarter and it's still down by about 20% in uh, Cape Coral, which was, I think, the, the most, most severely impacted. And when we look at sort of storms in the past, how long does it typically, I would think it, we sort of go through phases, right? Where... And there's the initial phase after the hurricane where areas that sort of saw significant de devastation, obviously they're going to see supply drops and we're going to see uh, maybe competing factors in terms of demand and some displaced residents needing temporary housing, uh, but also tourists avoiding that area because of the damage. And then we sort of move on to the next phase, which is sort of that in-between time where maybe tourists aren't yet back, um, residents are, are well on their way to, to rebuilding, uh, finding more, more permanent housing, and then you sort of and move on to the sort of long course of recovery of getting tourists to and consider that location again and, and, and come back. So as, as, you've, as you've been sort of studying this sort of is it years to recover? Is it in a season or two? Broadly, and wh what do you see there? The answer to that question, it varies a lot, I think, by location. So mm -hmm. it's your favorite answer. It depends. Um, <laughs> so, you know, as I was saying, like Panama City Beach, it, it, it was able to recover very, very quickly. So, yeah, so the, the cycle goes about three months around the, the, um, the disaster, you might see slightly elevated occupancy just because of displacement. Uh, you know, that's, that's something that we observe in, in wildfires as well, hurricanes, all kinds of natural disasters. And then for Panama City Beach, it was only about, uh, you know, six months to a year, we had, we had pretty much full recovery. 
I think that was aided by the fact that, you know, we do have that is a really strong sort of tourist economy down there. Uh, and, you know, they were cognizant of that. And a lot of the redevelopment was, you know, looking towards being able to accommodate that. And when we look at Hurricane uh, Ian, you know, these are these are population centers, too. You know, we've got short term rentals. Some of these are vacation homes, but a lot of these are, are, are uh, also second homes and, and homes that, that people are sometimes staying in. Uh, as well, parts of the year, and that that takes a little bit longer, I think, to to build back, and that's what we've seen in Cape Coral. Is that even a year later, we're we're still down twenty percent. Uh, I'm thinking it could take several more years to, to completely recover that market again, just because of the the population that actually lives there that is working to to get back to where they were. Another thing to consider and think about with these hurricanes as well is, you know, it as climate change. Uh, maybe intensifies hurricanes and flooding. This has effects on recovery as well that I think that we've seen in in Cape Coral and, and uh, uh, other areas. Insurance becomes more expensive. You know, flood insurance, homeowners insurance. Uh, sometimes uh, we've, what we've seen is some insurers have actually left uh, some of these markets uh, because of that, and that that adds significant hurdles to to building back after these disasters and can, I think, greatly extend the, the time horizon that we're, we're thinking about. Uh, that's great. And something while we were, we were talking, I was sort of looking at the the data for the uh, Cape Coral for Myers area, and it was one we're, we're, as you said, still seeing the recovery, but I mean, it actually really aligns with the areas that see the biggest decline in, in listings, i.e. the areas that were impacted the most directly by the hurricane, still seeing falling occupancies. So people still broadly avoiding those areas as they as they rebuild and recover, and the areas that didn't see major destruction, uh, maybe taking on some of the people that are are still wanting to travel to that area, and actually seeing I mean, further occupancy gains. So can sort of divide a market where I and mean, where it, it I and mean, areas that see destruction versus don't, um, which. And sort of plays into the different dynamics you see when a when a hurricane hits a is an area. True, uh, a lot of this is you know repeat business as well. So when you interrupt that cycle, that can make it difficult. If people move to a different area or they take their vacation to a different area, they may like that and stay there, especially if if those properties aren't available for you know, one or more seasons. Yeah. So moving on to uh, maybe an impact that is a, a bit more predictable, uh, especially given the political environment we've been in, uh, is the impact of government shutdown. So as we sit here uh, today in um, early September, the fiscal year will end at the end of the month. Uh, We still do not have a budget agreement, uh, which means there could potentially be a government shutdown if we do not see uh, either a budget signed or a continuing budget agreement passed. But this is something we have seen before, similar to hurricanes uh, during the Trump presidency. We did see a shutdown that lasted actually for a significant period of time, 35 days. So as we think about a government shutdown, what are the risks out there for short-term rental, either investors or operators? Sure. Yeah. The first thing that I was looking at when we we're talking about government shutdowns or you know, what are the direct effects? If we look at, say, Washington, D.C., people are going to be less likely to travel there if the government's shut down. You've got a lot of furloughed employees. Uh, 
the other thing that I was looking at, of course, were some of the services that were affected, like uh, national parks that had closed or had partially closed because of, of the shutdown. So those effects can be localized. Um, you know, it's difficult to see in our data the, the negative impacts of that 2018-19 shutdown in uh, a lot of these areas adjacent to parks. And uh, one of the reasons is that a lot of the parks were at least partially open. Uh, it was also during January, so you know this is not necessarily peak season for places like Smoky Mountains, which which had its roads open anyway. There was definitely some negative impact in D.C. We saw that in the hotel market as well back in 2018-19. Uh, but you know, a broader impact is uh, the, the the government shutdown restricts a lot of spending. So in essence, it acts as sort of a fiscal break on the economy. Uh, could contribute negatively to GDP growth. And I think this is especially risky right now. I know this economists have been talking about uh, recession fears and downturns for, for a long time. I think people have, uh, are, are now just shrugging us off. And that's when economists, <laughs> when you stop paying attention to them, that's when economists are most dangerous. Because we know we're, we're actually starting to see a little bit of turning in, in, the, in the economy. So unemployment, which had been really low, historically low, you know, 3.3%. Now, when I was going in undergraduate uh, studying economics, you know, 5% was considered the natural unemployment rate. You know? So, you know, 3.3, that was unheard of, you know, that that was serious overheating territory. I think it's moved down a little bit since then. So that, you know, now we're, we're raised up to about 3.8. And I think if we got to 4%, that would satisfy the Fed as to a you know, natural unemployment uh, essentially. So we're, we're sort of we're, we're getting there. We're edging up um, unemployment. You know, wage growth has slowed down a bit. I think the Fed would like to see it slow down a little bit more, but it's already starting to slow. Um, so whenever you have wages that increase more quickly than productivity, you know, you've got all these incomes that are chasing you know, larger incomes, chasing the sort of the same amount of goods. You have that inflationary pressure. So that is a measure that they're looking at. So that's sort of tailing off. We saw very strong consumption in July. Uh, however, you know, a lot of that was, again, those strong balance sheets that we saw post-COVID. We were all stuck in our houses, got a little stimulus check and nothing to spend it on. Uh, you know, we paid down some debt. So, you know, that, that really helped our wealth position. But, you know, we're digging into that in July. So I think there's we're at a position where we're, we're more likely to be headed into this downturn. Uh, you know, Oxford Economics says that some sectors are already there. Uh, they call it a rolling recession. You know, sector by sector, we'll see. Also, another pressure is uh, student loan repayments are, are going to start up next month as well. And I've heard a lot of downplaying of that uh, in, in various forums, but I think that could have a real effect on people's perception of their, their wealth position and therefore their, their consumption spending, how freely they're going to be able to spend. So all of these things are happening at the same time. And then we're going to have a fiscal break, which could uh, exert a negative influence on the GDP. And that, that could further exacerbate the situation, maybe make a mild recession more severe. Bram, you're depressing me. Uh... <laughs> well, uh, you know, the sunny part of that is uh, that, you know, even if we were to have a, a more severe recession, our, our unemployment rate is still below what I think the natural rate of unemployment is. So we've still got a little bit of, of leeway there. Uh, and I think travel demand of all the different products and consumer goods that people can have, I think travel demand is going to prove out to be pretty durable with a low unemployment and 
just just the great labor numbers that we've seen for the last year. I think that the travel uh, is going to be maybe less affected than some other sectors. Durable goods, housing certainly um, is is extremely expensive and difficult right now with the interest rates being where they are. So so when you you mentioned sort of Oxford's rolling recession, how do you sort of think about short-term rentals in that uh, and maybe travel in general? Is that the rolling recession that short and travels had is already past us. I, and COVID was a massive recession for travel. We came back through that and other sectors are now seeing, and that maybe saw a big uptick in demand during the pandemic are now coming off of it and, and seeing a subsequent recession. So is sort of Oxford or our economists in general expecting and declines in in sort of travel demand over the back half of the year into into twenty twenty four. No, I don't. I don't think that they are. They're, they're not forecasting travel in particular to be sort of the next sector to to fall under recession. I think it's you know broadly services. We're starting to see a little bit of signs of weakness there, and then manufacturing maybe it it's already sort of seen a downturn, and it might be coming out of that at some point. Uh, but, you know, you're right. We had a, a pretty extended period of time where we had below normal travel levels. And then you also mentioned sort of student loan repayments. This is one that I'm, I'm hearing a lot of uh, chatter around on, on the impact, um, especially around consumer spending. Uh, you've got Gen Z, millennials, maybe even still some boomers with uh, student loans that they're going to have to start repaying upwards of $300 a month on average in terms of payments. And that could be a direct hit on maybe uh, on spending that people were putting towards discretionary sort of travel services, going out for dinners. And now they're all of a sudden going to have to start repaying those loans uh, come next month. And that that, that could be a a big uh, negative hit on the consumer spending side. Are you sort of following that? or expect that to happen? Yes, I am. Um, and I'm a little more, I think, bearish about that than, than some economists. We often assume that people are going to be perfectly rational and they're going to look at their lifetime income and, and the, the value of all their, their assets um, objectively. But I think there's a lot of research, too, that says that people are, are debt averse. You know, they don't like thinking about big debts that they've got. And I think, you know, having the student loan clause was, was uh, you know, really a, a positive, uplifting boon for a lot of people that had that extra money that they could spend, you know, month after month. It, it allowed them to maybe compartmentalize some of that student loan debt as, you know, maybe something we'll deal with later. So once those payments resume, ah, well, I've got to factor this into my budget. You know, I got to look at my wealth picture now in terms of all my liabilities versus my assets. So I think that, you know, that could have a, a really a profound psychological effect on, on consumption spending. And then if that happens, we've got, of course, multiplier effects. You know, if we're not going to be out there doing that consumption spending, there's all the, you know, the auxiliary stimulus, I guess, that occurs because of that economic activity that will not happen. But, but Bram, what about the point that uh, the government has instructed the credit agencies not to actually report people that aren't paying their student loans? So is anyone actually going to start paying these loans? Oh wow! Uh, let me let me write that down. That seems like a <laughs> that seems like a at least for the first year. Sustainable right economic now. strategy. Huh. Yeah, <laughs> I, 
mean, if there's not going to be a uh, penalty for not paying, I mean, is anyone going to pay? Uh, that, that, that's kind of uncharted territory. I think most people, by and large, you know, they'll follow the letter of the law. They'll honor their commitments. Uh, they've certainly been making a lot of uh, noise about it in the headlines lately. You know, hey, these are starting up again. You really got to pay these. So I think a lot of people will. So I mean, it's going to have an effect. Maybe not necessarily right in October uh, because there is a transitional forbearance period for people switching to the new save program. But, um, you know, after that, in the new year, I think this reality is going to hit home for a lot of people. All right. So, and we've talked about in government shutdown, hurricanes, student loan repayment, sort of some the risk to the economy, this sort of rolling recession that Oxford's been talking about. One of the other things that's sort of top of mind, sort of negative headlines towards the industry is regulation. Mm. Uh, And specifically, we have today uh, new regulation going into effect in New York, where Airbnb is going to start removing listings, uh, blocking future bookings uh, for properties that um, aren't registered with the city and uh, do not sort of meet the, the law for the new law in New York sort of restricting severely uh, how short-term rentals can uh, operate in the city. I know you've done a lot of research on on regulation. I can talk a little bit about and what we expect to happen, sort of the makeup of the city, uh, but maybe just kicking off. And overall, what what do we see in terms of regulation and, and its its longer-term impact on a market? And do we typically see a big drop off in listings? Do we typically see those listings come back? And how does that impact the performance of short-term rentals in a market? Yeah, sure. You know, I had trouble believing it, but I kept searching on Airbnb today for single rooms in in New York City. And sure enough, there's only about 180 some odd listings uh, for next week. So yeah, as far as regulation goes, they they are effective. You know, regulations can be very effective at limiting the the short-term rental supply. And sometimes very sharply so. We've seen, uh, there's some some really severe overseas examples for Amsterdam is, is a good one, for instance, where you can just see the number just shoot down as regulations uh, take effect. Here in the U.S., you know, we've had a little bit of a lighter touch in, in most places uh, than some of, the, some of our European counterparts. But I think the prevailing theme is that when you've got these really strict regulations, it's easier to keep renting if you, you've had a rental for a long period of time, but it's difficult to re-enter the market. So we had COVID-19 exert this uh, you know, terrific one-time impact on listings everywhere. And most places were able to recover, but you've got places with heavy regulation like San Francisco, Boston, New York in, in the U.S., and, and we're still you know, well below where we were before the pandemic. Some of these places were starting to make something of a, of a comeback. New York is one of those that started, had some upward trajectory. Um, but it, you know, it looks like with the renewed enforcement, uh, this may be slowed down again. Yeah, and, and, and New York is and one of the more interesting markets out there, just given all the regulations uh, that were around uh, and have been around for a long time. Mm. Uh, New York was, 
and really Airbnb's first major market that they pushed heavily into and was one of the I'm fastest growing from the beginning. As of today, um, or as of yesterday, uh, there were uh, 47,000 listings in the city. But unlike most markets, we'd already seen a transition of the supply. Uh, so in New York, 52% of the listings, 53%, were for 30-day or longer stays. Uh, and that's a higher percent than any other market in, in the U.S., in terms of the percent of stays that were only for mid or long-term rentals. And that's because in under the yeah. New York regulations, those are the permissible Airbnb or, or short-term rental units. Absolutely. We also see uh, almost 20,000 of the 47,000 listings being private and shared room. So rooms where the host are units where the host is present. And there's some overlap there between the two, but Broadly, the market has already shifted towards supply that is going to be legal under the new regulation. Uh, we do see that uh, New York is having a hard time uh, getting all the private and shared rooms registered. I think I read I mean, that there had been 3,000 uh, plus uh, applications submitted and only a couple hundred had actually been approved. Uh, so it may take some time to get all these units back that or should be legal under the new uh, regulations, but not going to be ready and available sort of day one, which unfortunately will impact the earning potential for a lot of people that probably and rely on short-term rentals to pay bills, make ends meet. And then sort of we dug into the data to find and of the short-term rentals that are more than likely now not um, illegal under the law, not able to be registered or operated, sort of 30-day uh, or less stays uh, in entire home units uh, with significant and booking activity. So over 20 reviews, and we're seeing them booked regularly, uh, available full-time, more than 180 days. It's only about 4,000 listings. Uh, and those are generating almost half of the revenue uh, that we see in the overall market. So of the 47,000 listings, uh, government's real, what it appears to be is going after this sort of and core group of only 4,000 listings. A lot of the headlines were sort of really and touting this sort of 40,000 listings illegal, which is just not the case. Very small percent of 4,000 listings. There's over three and a half million housing units in the city. I think almost 300,000 of those vacant. Um, so a lot of unused housing, a lot of uh, luxury condos, a lot of sort of units that could be going to long-term housing uh, that aren't. And short-term rentals have really been the scapegoat here. And I think unfortunate to see, unfortunate for these people that were um, operating these units that more than likely have to get taken down and find other ways to operate their businesses. Right. Yeah. You know, a couple of these things stand out to me. One, the delay in the processing of the applications is very unfortunate, right? That's what the Airbnb lawsuit was originally about is the difficulty in the registration process. And that case was dismissed, but it seems like we're seeing some of that play out, actually. I hope they get it straightened out. I know that New York has got a, you know, it's, it's strong December and January for New Year's and the holidays. So, you know, I hope we'll be able to, to go up and, and be able to stay and uh, go ice skating. 
Um, <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, and there's that other idea, and this is something that I've been doing a lot of research in, the housing affordability argument, which I think is the main argument in, in New York City. In fact, I think it's the main argument for most of these you know, very restrictive regulations that are going to play is that oh, well, housing is very difficult to afford in New York. So let's get rid of Airbnb and then housing will be plentiful again and we'll be able to, to get the prices down. But, you know, as you say, we've got 4,000 uh, essentially very active units. There are other units, but, you know, if they're occupied by the owner, but, you know, for some points in the year, it probably isn't going to, to be able to tr be transferred. But you've got these 4,000 units uh, and are, are they going to be affordable or are we going to see that statistic, the vacant homes, you know, where it was 353,000 vacant units, now it's 357,000 vacant units. Uh, you've got less tax revenue, you've got less tourism, you'd have a, sort of the benefits that, uh, that, that, those, that that brings, the economic benefits, uh, those will be gone, but we won't really actually see really any impact at all on the housing market. You know, housing affordability has certainly been an issue in New York City before Airbnb. And, you know, with, with this, I, I, I really am strained to see any measurable impact this is going to have on housing affordability moving forward. Well, uh, on the, that positive note, uh, <laughs> maybe we'll, we'll wrap it up. Well, it, one, one thing I would say, though, is that, you know, regulations can be changed. And if this is the case, you know, we, you know, we have a couple of years and wow. It looks like housing is still unaffordable in New York. Uh, maybe we can roll back some of this this onerous regulation that was yeah. maybe put in place under under bad premises. And that's where we sort of need listeners to and and show up, push back, uh, help fight these these regulations, help help our our leaders in these cities understand all the benefits that short term rentals do provide. The these cities, guests, bring tourists into a destination uh, that can be bring and very positive long-term benefits, uh, which we, we all see. So, Bram, thank you so much for joining today. Are there any sort of parting thoughts, anything you're sort of else you're watching over these next uh, couple months that uh, you'd like to share with the users? Sure. Yeah. Uh, the one one thing that I would say is that this short-term rental industry is incredibly strong right now we've talked about a lot of negatives today but you know historically i think a lot of these are, are pretty minor concerns you know some of the things that this industry has weathered whether it's covid uh, uh difficult regulations in the past uh it's very it's in a very strong position today july we saw the most demand in the u.s that we've seen in any month uh, for short-term rentals uh, the share of the overnight economy. I heard you talking with Isaac the other other day about that. Uh, it's it's back up to really high levels. Uh, so, you know, short-term rental industry, I believe, is going to be a permanent fixture in overnight stays and, and accommodations, hospitality moving forward. These are just some of the things that maybe you should keep in mind while you're operating. You know, things that you can prepare for, plan for. Uh, moving forward to to make sure that your operation is running as, as smoothly as it can. Well, thank you for sort of wrapping it up on a on a positive note. Uh, and with that, thank you, listeners. We appreciate you tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.